and welcome to our In The Zone podcast on old versus new technologies. I am Georgie Makin, editor of Bioanalysis Zone, and I'm joined today by Franklin Spriggs from KCAS. If you'd like to introduce yourself. Yes, thank you, Georgie. My name is Frank Spriggs. Um, I am the director of the Large Molecule Services at KCAS in Kansas City. I've been working in the bioanalytical arena for approximately 10 years, a little more than 10 years. Um, I started this, uh, this foray into bioanalysis uh, at a small company in New Haven, Connecticut, where I was in a biomarker discovery group. Um, from there, I moved to Amgen in Thousand Oaks, California, where I had the pleasure of learning regulated bioanalysis while in Benoit de Silva's group. After a, a short stint at Amgen in 2007, I um, relocated and moved to Pfizer, where I continued to build my knowledge in regulated bioanalytical um, assays and really got the hang of and the understanding of immunogenicity assays. Uh, 2015, a leadership position was available when in a small CRO in central Indiana, where I learned um, how how the CRO space works and, and how it's different from the pharma and the biotech space. And as of 2017, I've been here at KCIS, where I lead a group of approximately 15 people um, over the last 10 months or so. Okay, that's great. Thank you. So if we kick off with our first question, considering large molecule analysis, how do you decide between different technologies? There's, there's multiple ways you can go about it, but I am a big proponent of starting with a conversation. Um, I like to get our client on the phone, talk to them about what their uh, what their idea of program success is, um, so that we can choose the appropriate platform selection for uh, platform for them. Yeah, we I, I tend to bucket the conversation into kind of two uh, two areas, starting with kind of a high level biology of the drug or the target that that they're looking to quantify. You know, some of the questions that we may ask is, what's the Cmax? Because that helped us understand how high up the curve needs to be or, or the highest concentrations I'm going to be measuring. Have they done any PK before now? Um, maybe in the non-GLP space and discovery with, with other constructs of the drug. Um, that allows us to think about sensitivity that may be needed or about the dynamic range of the, the curve that, that we're looking at like to talk to them about what are the natural binders for the protein or the natural ligands. Are they soluble? Are they multimeric? Um, I like to know so that I can anticipate if there's going to be any interference issues that might lend itself more for one platform versus the other. And then if it's a biomarker, I like to know if it's going to be up or down regulated, again, towards a sensitivity question. After going through some of the high-level biology, I start to dig into some of the assay specifics. Obviously, first question I want to know is, do you already have an assay? Um, you know, what is the assay platform that you're using right now? What's the technologies you're using? Um, are you doing it in matrix? Are you doing it in buffer? Um, and critical to any ligand binding assay, what reagents are available? Do you have some custom reagents? Are you using all commercial reagents? 
do you have the conjugated reagents if they have to be conjugated, or do we need to do that and track and, and make sure the quality is there? And finally, is there a sample volume limitation? Are we talking a mouse study where I might only have 100 microliters? Are we talking a human study where I might have a mil of matrix? Um, that plays into, again, sensitivity and platform selection. There are some platforms that are great for low volume, others that, that absolutely can't work with, with very small volumes. And you know, I, I, I know that seems like a lot of information to gather for, for choosing a platform in the bioanalytical space, but all of these do get taken into consideration when we're making that decision on which platform or platforms to use or evaluate for the success of the program. That's really interesting. Would you be able to go one step further and describe how KCIS is involved in these decisions and the technologies that you utilise? Certainly. Um, yeah, as, as I just talked about, it starts with the conversation, and that conversation leads to those answers. So if there is a significant amount of method development, so back to the question of do you have an assay, have you developed something, and what does that look like? If that assay is in a quote-unquote validatable state, then the answer is really pretty obvious. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's, that's kind of the theory. Um, as far as immunogenicity or ADA studies, uh, the standard is mesoscale diagnostics, um, an electrochemiluminescent program. However, depending on reagent availability and, and needs of the, uh, of the client, a colorimetric ELISA, may actually be more beneficial and serve the purposes better. So those, those two examples, pretty straightforward. However, I'll tell you that's usually the exception. That's not the rule. Um, more often than not, that decision is, is more nuanced than a uh, black and white uh, choice. So the KCAS scientist that gets assigned to the client and the project, when they're having that discussion with the customer, they're trying to make sure that the assay meets the customer's expectations for sensitivity, for throughput, um, to be it. So they'll evaluate any available information that they have, and then they'll make a recommendation that has a balance between the needs of the program, availability of the supplies, matrix capability, uh, compatibility, and the regulatory aspects of it. Um, we try to leverage some known information that, that we have from that conversation. You know, the analyte biology, as I talked about, is there some interfering particles that, that we're going to have to deal with and know about up front so that we can start to plan that attack early? Do you have PKPD so that we can start to understand Again, that dynamic range, we want to know what is ideal for that, and we want to know the dilutions that we're going to have to do to, to be successful. Um, and again, some sample volume is frequently overlooked. However, it is a very critical piece, especially in earlier discovery where you are working in mice and, and small mammals. And then the scientist will work with the customer, and we, we balance needs with cost, with ability. So it, it is a balancing act, and frequently we'll look at a couple technologies, if available, to try to find the one that works best for the, uh, for the client. What 
would you say are the key advantages and challenges that you face with these different technologies? How would you address and overcome these issues when choosing the right technology for a project? Yeah, I'm going to, yeah, I think there, there is several technologies that are out there that, that we here at KCIS use. Um, and I can kind of run through those somewhat quickly and give you pros, cons, and solutions to some of those cons. Um, a color metric ELISA, or what most people think of when they think of an ELISA with an HRP conjugate or um, an alkaline phosphatate conjugate, you know, that is certainly considered an old technology. However, it is still by far the most commonly utilized and most widely available and easily an easy entry point for any company to get into to start to develop and, and get an idea of what their assay is going to look like. So we get a lot of those color metricalizers that come in as, as potential transfers. Some of the pros, yeah, there are tons of suppliers of kits, of antibodies, of conjugates. Um, they're, they're literally, you can throw a rock and, and hit a vendor who has them. Cost of supplies tend to be the least expensive of the technologies that I'm going to talk about. Um, and then one thing that's kind of nice is it is an enzymatic reaction that when you're using HRP, you can actually visually monitor or monitor on a plate reader so you can get the ideal time to stop that enzymatic reaction to get the results that you're looking for. However, some of the cons of the, uh, of the color metricalizer are really related to some of the pros. Um, because the availability of supplies are so great, the problem with that is the quality of some of those reagents are not so great. So mitigating that, we're looking at reviewing the documentation regarding those reagents, understanding where that reagent come from, comes from, and by that, I don't necessarily mean the host animal that an antibody was made from, but if you dig deep enough, you can find that many sellers are selling the actual same reagent, just with different catalog numbers um, and with their own labeling on it. Um, I have, over the years, identified some suppliers that I prefer to use because I know the quality, I know that, that I'll be able to get large enough quantities of it, or at least that they're, they're um, supply chain is sufficient that I don't have to worry about being on back order all the time. And then the other way, if you can't get one of those vendors that has good supply chain, make sure you can obtain sufficient quantity when you decide what the antibody is to last you as long as possible, um, as well as being fiscally uh, feasible. Another con is as a smaller dynamic range um, that leads to larger dilutions which is more time and energy making the dilutions, potentially greater error. Not a lot can be done there. However, at KCAS, we mitigate that by minimizing error by having regular pipette verifications. Um, that allows us to identify any equipment problems earlier so that we don't have a, we don't have a long period of time where a pipette has been out of spec. So we're really relying on the analyst's ability. And then the enzymatic reaction. As I said, it was a bonus because you can monitor it. 
Well, enzymatic reactions are time and temperature sensitive. So while we strive to have a constant temperature or all labs strive to have a constant temperature within the labs, it just is, is frequently it does vary um, and it can change. So if you can either use the uh, plate in the incubator, there are many ways that you can mitigate that. Um, you know, one of the critical, one way to really mitigate that is when you're validating the assay, you test short and long incubation times and show that they are fine and then that you're getting solid results. Another platform or technology we can use is time-resolved fluorescence. Again, this is not a new technology, but it tends to be one that is underutilized in the BA lab. Um, I will say it is having a bit of a renaissance um, as there's been more need towards high-sensitivity biomarker assays, and TRF can actually do that. It has a wider dynamic range than the colorimetric ELISA. The signal generation, in this case, it's not the enzyme reaction. It's actually very stable because it's excited by a laser and red, um, the luminescence, fluorescence, sorry, is red off it. And you can do some multiplexing, although not large multiplexes. Some of the disadvantages is reagents are not as readily available as a colorimetric ELISA. Um, I'm not saying the availability is poor, it's just not as ubiquitous as colorimetric ELISAs. Reagents do cost a little more. However, with a wider dynamic range, likely going to have fewer repeats because you're not getting the sample diluted into the dynamic range. And then the, the final disadvantage is that it's a little harder to conjugate that in-house compared to some of the other technologies because it's a europium or a lanthamide that you have to conjugate. Chemistry can be a little trickier. However, there are several new conjugation kits that have been released in the last year or two that has made this much less of an issue. A third technology uh, that I've mentioned before is mesoscale diagnostics or electrochemiluminescence. This is definitely a newer technology compared to the others. However, by new, I am talking 15 or more years old. Um, the use of um, electrochemiluminescence for PKPD assays is becoming a little more popular. Um, the primary purpose when it first came out was immunogenicity, um, but as Biomolecular scientists have dug deeper into this. They're finding it has a nice, large dynamic range, um, several different plates that are available that allow, uh, allow you to get different sensitivities if you need it using the same reagents. There is a larger number of characterized kits and well-characterized kits that are becoming available from um, Mesoscale directly. And then it has a greater multiplexing capability than the, the um, time-resolved fluorescence does. Um, an example of that is KCS has qualified a 54-plex biomarker panel that, that would be near impossible to do, um, is impossible to do with the uh, time-resolved fluorescence. Disadvantages, it's not cheap. Um, you know, the consumables tend to be pricey. Um, not much that can be done about the price of it because the other negative or the other disadvantages 
there's a single supplier of many of the uh, of the reagents. The plates, which are very specific and have to be those plates, single uh, single supplier. Um, the sulfur tag, which is the conjugate that actually creates the signal, also single supplier. So while there's not a lot that you can do about the price, similar to TRF, um, the wide dynamic range, you're likely going to have less repeats. Um, and one potential disadvantage, certainly when you're doing early method development and you're trying to figure out some things, when you run the plate, when you read the plate, it's a one and done. You can't reread the plate and get an additional read off it. However, that is not necessarily a disadvantage because this is, again, it's not an enzymatic reaction that increases over time. It is a reaction that is stimulated by electrical uh, um, potential that is applied to the plate. So it wouldn't really change even if you could read it multiple times. And the last technology that I will talk about is the Quanteric Samoa. Um, this is a new technology. Um, it's been released for regulated use here in the KCAS laboratories. Um, it is something that we use for high sensitivity biomarker detection. Um, and if you recall to the previous um, couple questions, I talked frequently about the small sample volume size. Quanterix's, the Samoa system, actually is very good with those smaller sample sizes. Some challenges is it's somewhat low throughput. Um, you know, due to the lower throughput of the instrument, there's some prioritization of the samples and time points that may be that may be made. Some creative laboratory scheduling that we can do to to ensure that the answers that the customer wants are answered adequately and in a timely manner. Materials, again, new technologies, single vendor, high cost materials. Not a lot that can be done except for, as with anything, volume discounts may, uh, may be applied. Um, so I think that is kind of the high level, although wordy, uh, discussion on some of the platforms and what the pros, cons of them are, how we at KCIS mitigate some of those challenges. Wonderful, thank you. Continuing on from challenges, how far do regulations impact decisions to utilize these technologies? Regulations always play an important role for anything that we do in the Biomineralogical Lab and here at KCIS. So whenever we're evaluating technology to bring in-house, um, one of the things that we look at and have an absolute requirement for is that it has to meet the regulatory requirements outlined in 21 CFR Part 11. If not directly, there has to be a way to ensure that we are meeting those regulatory requirements. Additionally, as we um, use the method and as we have the discussions with the clients as far as what is the purpose of the data? Um, you know, is it discovery, is this IND enabling, um, that leads us down the path of not the technology, but the level of characterization the assay must go through uh, based on that program stage. So while the regulations impact the technologies we bring in, 
once the technology is in-house at KCIS, the regulations impact the documentation and the validations that, that we do to support a study. And at that point, we're following FDA guidances, we're following industry white papers, we're writing validation protocols that the client is reviewing and approving. So I think that, in general, 21 CFR Part 11 required. Um, once it's in-house, we know that it is a compliant piece of equipment that we can actually do regulated work on. How would this apply to anti-drug antibody studies? Many of the technologies that I talked about can work for ADA um, or anti-drug antibody, ADA for short. However, the default really has become electrochemiluminescent um, by use of the mesoscale diagnostics platform. It is the industry standard um, at this point. So we tend to default there. However, the technology as far as the platform is concerned isn't as critical to improving an ADA method as the sample handling and kind of technology around how to improve drug tolerance, how to increase sensitivity to the required sensitivity that the FDA is looking for. Some of these, again, are not not new. There's acid dissociation, which has been around to allow the drug and the ADA kind of disassociate, and then we um, can get a little more sensitivity or we can detect antibodies in a higher concentration of dose therapeutic. We can do some sample cleanup methods. Um, you can do a, a bead-based pull-down and pull out the drug um, and then release the, uh, the ADA that's bound to the drug. Um, and there are some, we'll call them antibody enrichment um, systems that you can do that are, that are particularly useful if the therapeutic that you're looking to find the anti-drug antibodies to is not also an antibody, so a peptide or a small protein um, or a fusion protein that they can be very useful. So, yeah, all in all, I'd say that KCS is, is working. We do try to work hard with our partners to ensure we've selected the right platform for you, for the PK, for the PD, for the ADA, um, you know, to make sure that we're meeting your needs um, so that your drug development prop program is adequately informed um, and can be successful ultimately in, in saving people's lives. So whether you need biomarkers assessed that are highly sensitive, um, you have different drug constructs that need to be evaluated in a discovery study. You need validation of quantitative methods or ADA methods. You know, we can, we can help out with that. That's great, Frank. Thank you. Would you be able to give your thoughts just before we wrap up on the impact that old versus new technology decisions are having on the industry, specifically how they might occasionally adversely affect the outcomes of projects when old versus new technologies are being considered? So there are, in the ligand binding space, a lot of improvements towards sensitivity, dynamic range are all technology-based. Um, we have seen old technologies get revived. Um, we've seen new tech technologies such as surface plasma resonance um, come up where you don't need to have a label. 
Um, we've seen things like the Quanteric Samoa. Uh, we've seen any number of new technologies that continue to be developed. And, and while scientifically it is fantastic and, and it leads to great science being done and great bioanalytical science being done, some caution does have to be placed into it in that questioning is it in a state where I can use it for a regulated study? Is the FDA going to look at this and have 300 more questions because they don't understand the technology at all? Um, and, and I have had numerous discussions with clients over the years about, I understand that you like this new technology, that there's a potential to go that route. However, I have proven knowledge and experience that the color metric ELISA is a great assay, it works well, it functions, and we can get solid reproducible results from that, and the new technology is an unknown factor. And that is where we, we look at, is the client willing to move towards the, the unknown factor and take some of that risk? that we will, we will work with them if we have the technology in-house that is validated, it is regulatory, uh, it's, it's compliant with the regulations, we're happy to work with the client on that. Um, we may try to nudge them towards the proven that studies have been approved using this assay. There's no reason to believe you're going to have some major um, epiphany as far as sensitivity or drug tolerance or whatever using this other technology. So I think that that is probably the potential adverse impact to a project is sometimes scientists get distracted by the shiny new, um, shiny new system instead of relying on good and true when the, the old and true system is more than adequate and will serve the purposes and actually frequently can meet timelines better because you aren't delving into the unknown. That's great. Thank you. That's all the questions. Is there anything you want to add as a final comment at all? No, I think, um, I think we, uh, as I said, we can, we can help you out um, at KCIS if you, if you have a, a unique problem or you have some capacity uh, that, that you need to find, you know, KCAS is there. We can certainly handle your, your challenging or your routine drug development program. Thank you for listening to our Bioanalysis Zone podcast, and thank you, Frank, for joining me. You can find more on our In The Zone feature on old versus new technologies on our website at www.bioanalysis-zone.com or join the conversation on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram.